Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. Welcome to Politics in Question, a podcast where we talk about how our political institutions are failing us and what to do about it. I'm Julia Azari. I'm an associate professor of political science at Marquette University. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute. So our guest today is Amanda Ripley. She's a journalist and the author of High Conflict, How We Get Trapped and How We Get Out. I found out about this book a few months ago when John Dickerson on the Slate podcast told us that this book was going to fix everything and save everything. And I'm really excited to get to talk to the author this morning. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks for having me. Good to see you all. Yeah, well, welcome, Amanda. Really excited to have this conversation, especially because one of the things that we are always talking about on this podcast is conflict in politics. And you know, I think conflict is essential to politics because politics and elections and campaigns are about the things that we disagree about because the things that we agree about uh, aren't political issues. But I think one of the things that sometimes gets lost in this conversation about conflict in politics is that there are different kinds of conflict. And so one of the things that I think is a really important contribution of your book for people who think about politics is that there are really different kinds of conflict and that even if conflict is inherent to politics, not all conflict is the same. And one of those types of conflict is obviously the title of your book, uh, High Conflict. So that kind of setting the table for the conversation here, I wonder if you could help us to think about what high conflict is, how it's different from other types of conflict, and uh, maybe what are some examples uh, from your book to kind of help us get thinking about these different types of conflict? Yeah, you know, I went into this because like a lot of people, I was just exhausted by the the level of conflict that we were in as a country and didn't seem to be going anywhere. Like it was no longer that interesting even. Uh, it just seemed like we were stuck, right? So my first question going into this was how do pe- how do other people and communities get out of conflict? And I followed a politician in California, an activist in England, a former gang leader in Chicago, all of whom used to be stuck in, in miserable conflicts of one kind or another. And I quickly learned that I was asking the wrong question to your point. You know, it's not about getting out of conflict. It's about getting out of high conflict, which is a specific category of conflict. It can start small, but it gradually takes on a life of its own. And it becomes sort of like conflict for its own sake, right? So our brains behave differently. We become certain of our own righteousness and make a lot of mistakes about the problem and the people who disagree with us. Eventually, in every high conflict I've looked at, everyone suffers to to different degrees. So that seems to be the distinction versus what I call good conflict, sort of like, you know, what John Lewis called good trouble. Good conflict is really important, and I would say we need more of it as a country, not less, right? Good conflict can be heated and stressful, and there can be anger and fear and sadness and all those things, which are really important, right, to push us and make us better and stand up for ourselves. But it doesn't collapse into dehumanization, right, and contempt. So there is a real distinction in the research on emotion in conflict between anger and contempt, right? Anger you can work with contempt is much harder. So 
the I, I wanted to kind of start putting this into kind of a historical framework because your your book is really about how we get out of this particular kind of conflict and it feels like we're in this moment of really unresolvable conflict over right now over whether America is going to be a multi-ethnic democracy and so it made me think about the kind of Lincoln and the the Civil War um, that this the country can't be permanently half slave and half free it has to be one thing or another and it made me wonder if there are these moments in which this kind of high conflict is just inevitable and the only way through it is is for one side to win or is this have i been sucked into the high conflict mindset and can't get out of it yeah it's funny i get this question a lot and it takes different forms, but it's usually like, okay, but can't we have an exception for this high conflict? Like this one's okay. Like this one, we have no choice, right? Um, and it's, I think it's it's totally understandable. It's, it's very normal, I think, to feel like there is no option other than total victory. And, and that is how high conflict operates. It is also not different from high conflict anywhere else in the world that has happened and can end very badly, right? And probably the most, the thing that to me is sort of most chilling about the high conflict I've looked at and the one of the reasons we want to be very sure that we've explored every other option is uh, you end up mimicking the behavior of your adversaries in high conflict, even when you don't mean to, even when you don't realize it. So that happened with every every case that I followed, it, it is it is part of the diabolical nature of high conflict, that if you go into it fighting for justice, for um, your family, let's say, you will end up putting your family at risk, right? So there's the, this very dangerous um, counter effect that almost always happens just to different degrees, depending on the the power of the group or the person going into the high conflict. Well, first of all, thank you for joining us today. You know, I think this is a very interesting book. I really enjoyed it. I highly recommend it to our readers and especially the audiobook as well, which you narrate yourself, um, which I, Lee, I don't think you narrated your audiobook, but you, next time you should demand it. Um, I think it's much better to listen to a book from an author who wrote the book, right? It's much more personal. So, but I, I want to dwell on this, uh, pick up kind of where Lee and Julia are going here in this notion of conflict and what it is and try to tease out some of your thoughts on that. You know, as I see it, conflict to me is all about how we resolve our disagreements. And there's two ways that you can do it in the most basic manner possible. You can resolve uh, our disagreements with force or coercion. That's violence, basically. Or you can negotiate and bargain with one another. And that's politics. And for politics, you need a, a space and you need a process where people can come together and make decisions on a collective basis. And when we talk about dehumanization and contempt, you know, one of, one of the things that came out from your book is that it's almost like you're pushing people not you, but the people who are engaged in this high conflict are pushing people outside of this kind of realm or this circle of acceptable political conflict. They're no longer allowed to participate in that space for different reasons. And I find this, you know, really, really fascinating because in this whole notion of conflict is, is really fascinating to me. But to what extent is there 
as I read your book, it, this idea of conflict is almost jumps out as this like sliding scale of conflict, or it's a, um, there's a continuum of conflict where it's okay. And I agree with you. I think conflict is vital. And I think your observations there are great, but, and then, but it's a certain point, it kind of tips over into too much conflict. And I wonder how that, how you think that description, if it's accurate, uh, compares to this different way of resolving our disagreements. And to take the Civil War, it's a great example. You know, the the Civil War happened when the South decided to no longer try to resolve their disagreements with the North over issues like slavery via politics. And they left that process and they decided instead to resolve it via violence. And there was a there's a decision there, sometimes conscious, sometimes not. And so it's not necessarily a continuum. It's something different altogether. And I mean, how does that how does that description of conflict and the way we resolve our disagreements compare with how you conceptualize the relationship of good conflict and high conflict? Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, first of all, side note, I'm so glad you liked the audiobook because <laughs> I'd never been asked to my other books, nobody asked me to to do the recording. So I was really excited to do that. But the best part is, you know, they agreed to insert some clips from actual people in the book. And I wish I'd had more high quality audio clips, but hearing the actual person talk, right? Like the former gang leader in Chicago or the politician in California, hearing them is just so much better than hearing me, you know, impersonate them or quote them. That, and just on that too, it's, you're, you're so right. And I think Malcolm Gladwell's last book, or at least one of the last books that he's written, it, it takes that approach as well. And it's a really good approach. So I should encourage all of the publishers who are listening to this podcast to, to adopt this approach more often. Yeah, yeah, that's where I got the idea from Malcolm Gladwell's book. I, and in his audio quality, by the way, it was like terrible. And and still it was better than like a lot of the, they were just like recordings must have been off his phone when he was interviewing people. But still it was better than, than not hearing the real person. So yeah, there should be every, I'm very grateful to Simon & Schuster audiobooks for, for doing that because it takes more work, right, to insert those clips. But um. Anyway, to get to the harder question, um, <laughs> yeah, I like this idea that conflict is on a continuum. Um, and I think that's right, right? Like most things. And you can, you move back and forth. You, you, you can move back and forth in the same day. Uh, <laughs> like if you're in an interpersonal conflict, right? Between high and good conflict. But high conflict is especially magnetic and no one is immune to it, right? So it's the kind of thing where you ideally want to set up guardrails so people can't easily, um, you know, leave the arena, like you said, right? And, and can't resort to violence. Once people believe that annihilation is the only option, it's, it's really too late. Um, so it's, it's late in the day when you're, when you're thinking about, well, how can we, um, how can, where do we go from here? And that's why, like in the research on emotion and conflict, hatred is so difficult because, you know, anger by contrast, Anger is good because the the underneath that is, I want you to be better, right? I want you or this group to be better. Hatred is like, I've given up on you. You'll never change, right? And the challenge with politics, particularly modern politics, where we're all so interconnected, right? And so acutely aware of each other and often in ways that are <laughs> very distorted, um, we can't sever those ties, right? So the us versus them high conflict um, mode has reached its upper limits, right, of its effectiveness. So it just doesn't, it, it doesn't work in the sense that you can't 
you cannot annihilate the other side. This is something I, I remember talking recently to um, an ambassador, former ambassador to the US from South Africa, and he was saying how one of the biggest challenges there was to convince everyone that the white people were not leaving. Like, annihilation was not an option, essentially. So then what? It's sort of like uh, William Urey, the negotiator, he talks about, you know, you can't win this marriage, you know, there is no winning. So if winning means, uh, you know, a two-year short-term euphoria in which you try to get a few things done, and then two years later, everything gets undone, and meanwhile, there's a bunch of political violence, that's not winning, right? And so it's sort of like in a marriage where, you, you know, you can get divorced, but if you've got kids together, you still have to deal with each other. And I think that's very much the case for, for politics, right? That's a great point. Um, and, and maybe I can, can kind of coin a phrase there saying you, you can't win politics. Uh, and yet our politics is so much about winning and losing, especially in how, how the media covers politics, but also in how candidates talk about politics. I mean, Donald Trump, you know, was all about winning. You know, I mean, even Joe Biden, right? You know, he said, I'm going to beat Trump like a drum, right? He, his whole primary campaign was that he was going to be the, the candidate who can win. It wasn't necessarily, you know, I want, this is my vision for America, but I'm the guy who can beat Trump. Uh, so I want to, you know, push you to, you know, help us really understand our contemporary uh, politics in this uh, framework of winning and losing. Is that a function of being in high politics or sorry, high conflict? What is it about our politics? If so, that that makes us uh, in this space of of high conflict and Finally, I think there's kind of a debate about whether, you know, it's that we need, you know, the right people to like, you know, get together and get to know each other and kind of, you know, have dinner parties together. And that'll that'll kind of solve this high conflict or whether there's something deeper, uh, you know, whether it's in the, the, the nature of our political conflict or the media ecosystem or, or all of the above that just makes it really difficult for individuals to transcend high conflict. So that was a lot. But it sounds like you're saying is our system currently as it is sort of designed to create high conflict. And I think if I could distill my answer, it would be yes. <laughs> and so then the question is, why is that? How did that happen? And how do we get out of this? Right? So there are four major accelerants to high conflict. Um, there are more, but the ones that I think are worth mentioning here are the ones that all plague our current system to different degrees. Some could be better, could be worse. One is um, corruption in the system. So anytime a, a system doesn't have integrity, again, this could be worse in the U.S., but it could be better. And you all know this, right? So that the system doesn't isn't actually, it's serving moneyed interests. Um, it, there's lots of distortions in the system and people feel that, right? So anytime you have corruption in a system where it lacks integrity and trust, then it's vulnerable to high conflict. The other thing is the presence of conflict entrepreneurs who are raised up by institutions and culture, right? And we have we have a lot of that happening, right? So we have um, journalists, pundits, social media platforms, companies, politicians who are highly incentivized to exploit conflict for their own ends, sometimes for profit, but often 
for attention, for purpose, for camaraderie, lots of reasons. So we've really designed a bunch of institutions to cultivate conflict entrepreneurs and reward them, right? Um, and and there's you know there's also the power of group identities, especially the most dangerous kind, which is binary group identities. So Lee, this is why I enjoyed your book so much and and why I cited in this book because so much of the psychology of our political conflict is mirrored in the research on what happens when you divide humans into two oppositional groups. You know, I'm simplifying here, but basically it brings out our worst conflict instincts. We know this. This is deeply wired for lots of reasons, right? So the fact that we only have these two parties uh, is is a big problem from a conflict point of view. It, it allows us, encourages us, really gives us no other choice but to collapse many millions of people we've never met and will never meet into a category that we know very little about, that just, it doesn't fit, right? You cannot put this many people in two boxes. So uh, certainly that is part of our problem as well. And then the last accelerant is humiliation. Humiliation is probably the most underappreciated driver of high conflict all over the world in domestic violence, in civil war, and international standoffs. Um, Evelyn Lindner, the psychologist who studies conflict and war, she calls humiliation the nuclear bomb of the emotions. And I think that's about right. So then you think about, well, how, 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 why would we have any more humiliation than <laughs> now than any other time, right? Or in any other country. And again, that sort of interacts with these institutions we've created, news media, social media, that really encourage public humiliation, right? Bringing people low in a very public way. And obviously demagogues like Trump do this pathologically, right? So, so those, that interaction of those four things is very dangerous and, and, and creates high conflict pretty systematically. And one way, obviously, to interrupt that process is, you know, <laughs> many of the proposals you've made, right? About having more parties, having more choices, blurring the lines, scrambling up the categories that we're in. Yeah. So I want to pick up on this binary point and this humiliation point, I think is a, is a good entree for the question I want to ask. Although I have to warn you that I'm not totally sure I formulated it well as a question. But as I was listening to your book, and it kind of reminded me of some of the observations I had with, with Lee's book too. So as, as persuasive and, and well-researched as both of these books are, I have trouble sort of buying the premise that the main problem in the United States is is a binary as opposed to the main problem in the United States is a sort of institutional and social context in which some people preserve power for themselves and other people are excluded. And that latter excluded group has been trying to to agitate for more access to that power. And so it seemed to me like a lot of, of a lot of this conceptualization kind of assumes two sides that have some level of equal access to resources and power. And that historically in the United States that's just that's just not true. And I've I've been thinking a lot about the civil rights era and massive resistance to school integration and those types of, of kind of social forces. But it seems to me like this is the, the discourse in, in the study of American politics and polarization has shifted from we have too much conflict to we have too much racism. Um, and 
that's you know that that strikes me as kind of a qualitative difference and i wondered if you had any kind of comment on this this sort of what do we do when the when there's a binary and one side has a lot more historical institutional and structural power yeah so this is a great question i'm i'm glad you brought it up and a hard one right but i think it's important to really dig into it so every high conflict is asymmetrical every high conflict and just just because having a binary political system is part of how we got here. That's not the whole story. As I mentioned, corruption is also part of how we got here, right? We have a corrupt system that claims to be one thing, equal opportunity for all, and is not that thing. And people feel that, right? So it is true that there is asymmetrical power in the United States, particularly along racial lines. And when you look around the world at other high conflicts, there's always unequal power and often way more unequal than here, right? And so if you look at, you know, Rwanda, Syria, Northern Ireland, South Africa, lots of lots of really atrocious conflicts, right? Really intractable, wicked conflicts. The power imbalance was even greater, I would say, in most of those cases than it is here, because here, the Democrats now I'm talking here about the political party, not race, the Democrats still have a lot of power, right? And they particularly have a lot of cultural power. So in fact, it's much more complicated from a power imbalance point of view than a lot of other high conflicts that have been studied, which in some ways, which isn't to undercut your point, right? The deep institutional racism is how we got here and one of the things we're struggling with. But it's also not totally asymmetrical, right? I mean, <laughs> this is not exactly the same as some of those other conflicts. So it's hard to hold all this in my head at once, and I struggle with it, for sure. But I don't think that it's the case that just because a conflict is asymmetrical, it can't, it isn't worth trying to make it good conflict instead of high conflict. Does that make sense? It does. And your points about, oops, um, sorry, it, it does. Um, and your points about uh, the sort of Democrats and cultural power reminds me of some stuff that the political scientists, um, Dave Hopkins and Matt Grossman have, have also argued about the way that, the way that asymmetry, um, the way asymmetry works. And, you know, this is probably a situation in which every, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And when you've been reading about the middle of the 20th century, I think it's very easy to see this through this lens. I did sort of feel like maybe I didn't do a good job listening um, to your book. I did sort of feel like when I was in the example of the the politician in California or like the divorcing couple, that asymmetry theme didn't hit me as hard as it um as as it's, as I'm getting it from how you're talking about here, so I think I need to go back and kind of listen to the other chapters and think about the and think about the role of asymmetry a little bit more. Well, let's let's not make you do that. That takes forever. Let's do it right <laughs> here. Let me let me fix this or try to. You tell me. How about this? Let's take the analogy of marriage, right? <clears throat> so imagine you're trying to get out of a toxic a toxic marriage, and your partner was much more to blame than you were which happens, right? You know, there's like this, 
it takes two to tango. I'm not sure that's true. <laughs> like sometimes it, it doesn't. Um, so imagine your spouse is manipulative, deceptive, narcissistic. They cheated on you more than once. They also have more power. Maybe they make twice as much money as you do and a lot of status in the community. They have, you know, higher paid lawyers. That's asymmetrical. We would, I think, agree, right? Um, okay. So what now? In the divorce proceeding, it would be a hundred percent natural and understandable to get sucked into high conflict with this person and their legal team. That's, you know, often what happens. About a quarter of US divorces are high conflict, meaning they get locked in intractable, endless, negative spirals of legal filings that go nowhere. Each new filing brings new personal attacks, gross unfairness, profound disloyalty. Now imagine you have kids together, which also happens. And more than anything else, you want to do right by your kids, which is one reason you're ending this toxic marriage. Okay, so what is the right way to fight in that situation, right? I mean, it's diabolical, right? It's a hard problem, and I don't want to suggest it's not. You can't control the partner. You can't control your ex. You can influence the conflict in your own mind. So in every conflict, there are two fronts, right? The inner fight in your own head, how you're thinking about it and living in it, and the outer fight, who, who said what, who has which lawyer, what's happening with the, the, the legal team and the judge. And the outer fight gets like 99% of our attention. And it really matters, right? Who did what to whom, who has more power, that really matters. But the inner fight matters too. And not just in a sort of woo-woo way, like it sounds, but it actually really matters to the external fight. And it gets much less attention. So each of us has to decide in every conflict how we want to live in that conflict. Do we want to get swept up into an all-consuming feud that operates on autopilot? Do we want to risk working against our kids without realizing it, right? And we know that, you know, an analogy from the research, from Erica Chenoweth's research, would be that nonviolent social resistance movements are more than twice as effective as violent resistance movements, right? So there's a connection between the inner conflict and the outer conflict that is very important, not just for your own sanity, but for the outcome of the conflict, even if you can't control. I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot we can't control, particularly in asymmetrical conflict. What, how does that land? I mean, I think that makes sense. I guess, again, I'm sort of in this stuck in this mindset of thinking about a lot of the conversations that happened last year around slogans, right? How should, how should social movements use slogans? And that, that becomes a kind of a a continuous outgrowth of the violence question and right, the Chenoweth work, the Omar Wasa work. We've also had him on the pod talking about nonviolent um, social movements and their, their success, but then it becomes, well, you know, calibrate your strategies and don't ask for too much change. And this is, this is the framework that I bring to it. So what, what you say makes sense. I, I maybe am still having some trouble translating it into these larger scale structures from the, from the interpersonal examples. But I think, I think my co-podcasters are going to kill me if I don't stop talking. I think that's what's going to happen. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. This is, this is good conflict. Good conflict. Yes. So. I want to I want to pick up on what you know, what Julia's talking about here, though, and I think a lot of the struggle though comes from there's a distinction between the private sphere and the public sphere going back to antiquity, and one of the challenges, and I think that a lot of what happens in the private sphere can inform how we operate in the public sphere, um, but one of the challenges here, Julia, that you're grappling with with asymmetrical, I think, is may come out of that, but 
I, I'm not sure. I need to think more about it. But thinking about the public sphere in politics in general is a collective activity of equals participating in a process or their representatives. All conflict is going to be asymmetrical. You're either going to be for the status quo or against the status quo. And typically the status quo is going to be the side in a debate with more power because after all, that's why it's the the status quo. But, you know, I want to touch on this binary thinking aspect because I agree with the book and I agree with what you write about in the book. But then again, I was thinking about, it. I'm like, sometimes, yeah, you're right. Binary thinking is bad. And then sometimes though, it's, it's not. And I think it gets back to this distinction between conflict as a continuum or is conflict something that we make? Is it a decision we make? And binary thinking depends on how we resolve our disagreement through violence and, or through, you know, political process, through nonviolence. And the civil disobedience movement is a great example of this, right? Uh, is, is a great example of this is a, is a form of conflict, right? That embraced binary thinking to a large degree. Are we sure that it embraced binary thinking? I mean, I think that was something that was a big point of tension, right? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, no, absolutely. But there's, but when I think of binary thinking, I'm thinking about like a, you know, an ostracized group versus a dominant group in society. I mean, you can think of like King's letter, the Birmingham jail, and you would say, I would say in more emphatic terms that it is even more unfortunate that the white power structure of this city left the Negro community with no other alternative, right? There is a clear distinction here between a African-American community and the white community or the white power structure. And King is very focused and very aware of the different binary groups here. And that's the whole premise of his of his strategy. Oh, well, this is a great one. I'm so glad we're getting into this. So in that same letter, right, he talks about how he's feeling like he's standing between these different African-American groups, right? Between, mm -hmm. on the one hand, <clears throat> people who have grown complacent with sort of despair, right, and given up. And then on the other hand, uh, he's talking here about the black nationalist movement, and he's saying people who have been consumed by bitterness and hatred, right? And what he argues for is a creative, nonviolent tension that doesn't collapse into bitterness and hatred. So in that sense, I think he's trying to argue against a strict binary, right? He's, he, he argues repeatedly for the idea that this is not fixed, that your opponent, some of them, not all of them. Right. This is where he's yeah, no, I mean, I agree, but I think it's so he's this is where he talks about creating a Socratic tension in the mind of, you know, of, of the white community of white people. And, and what I think you're right, though, is King was the thing of the thing about embracing politics eventually is that you have to let go of your kind of ostracized identity and you have to become an individual versus a member of a group. And you have to become a, a co-equal in this, you know, kind of in this larger community that then gets to participate in a process. And that's a very hard thing to do sometimes. But I think what but there's still King very much is, is uh, his rhetoric is dealing with with binary thinking in a large degree. He's trying to get out of it, but he's using it to get out of it. So there's a little it's it basically comes down to, I think, how we how we are going to resolve our, our disagreements and not necessarily binary thinking, because if you resolve our disagreements, and this gets back to Lee's earlier point as well about, you know, the politics, if we if we think about elections, 
it leads to an emphasis on winning and losing, right? Boom, that's it. But if you think about something in between elections, you need a process to resolve this disagreement. This You need something that plays out over time. You need something that can reconcile losers in a debate to its outcome. You need a commitment to participate in that process. You need institutions, as Hume say, that bind the society together, that force people to, to have to, to grapple with one another in that process and that ultimately it leads to to kind of outcomes that are kind of half a loaf for everybody involved. And so is the problem necessarily high conflict or is the problem that we're not resolving our disagreements in institutions via debate and and argument and fighting. I mean, look, this I don't think this the 19th century politics was this, uh, was especially, you know, peaceful and and rosy. But there was this kind of general commitment, with the exception of the Civil War, of people to resolve their disagreements via this kind of this this kind of process. They fought about it. They went. I mean, all kinds of stuff. But you didn't see the same type of dysfunction that we have today, even though violence coexisted and violence coexists with politics all the time. I mean, go back to the 60s and the 50s and the 70s. It's almost like when we get the sense that there's a lot of violence around that we almost redouble our commitment in the past to these political processes, but we're not seeing that right now. And so I'm wondering, it's almost like this passive aggressive kind of thing where we don't have these debates, we don't have these arguments, we don't have people trying to win inside these institutions. And I'm wondering if that's the problem as opposed to the, the nature of the conflict. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I guess it sounds like what you're saying is, is the problem that these institutions have been undermined and abandoned versus the idea that the nature of the conflict, right? And I'm not sure it's an either or. Like, I hate to give a, a, a squishy answer like that, but in my view, That's the, the reason these institutions... <laughs> I mean, the reason these institutions have been undermined is partly because we're in high conflict. Like, we have been for a while. You know what I mean? Like, it, it doesn't... Like, this is what happens in dysfunctional conflict. Like, people do not have debate and go through the process. They don't believe in the process. Is that is that wrong and shameful and frightening? Yes, it is. But I don't see them as as separate. So I, I want to move on um, to a, what I think was a, also a really important contribution in terminology is uh, the idea of a conflict entrepreneur. Uh, and, you know, I think it's you know, really useful in identifying that. And I mean, I think of somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene as sort of the paradigmatic case of that is that she just thrives on this stuff. Uh, and, you know, is there something about high conflict that makes it more likely for conflict entrepreneurs to, to thrive? Uh, and, and how do, you know, how, how do we stop giving conflict entrepreneurs power? I mean, I think, and I mean, I guess also Trump is probably also a paradigmatic case as, as well. In high conflict, it, 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 it cultivates, generates, encourages, incentivizes conflict entrepreneurs um, because we want to hear that siren call, right? Like that, that kind of argument that is very galvanizing and really speaks to the part of us that has given up on the other side, that is disgusted by the other side, is that's a much more salient message, right? Um, so, you know... <laughs> It, this too is very tricky. Um, my initial instinct in working on this book and on the idea of conflict entrepreneurs in high conflict was 
to just simply, we just need to marginalize conflict entrepreneurs. And that is, I think, an important step. Everyone I followed, whether it was the local politician in California or the uh, former gang leader in Chicago who was in this, you know, many year vendetta with a rival gang, all of them ended up distancing themselves from the conflict entrepreneurs in their lives. You also see this with ugly, uh, toxic divorces, by the way. There's always a conflict entrepreneur on the sidelines. Sometimes it's a lawyer, sometimes it's a sister. <laughs> I mean, there's any number of people who are kind of fanning the flames of the conflict for their own ends, sometimes without realizing it. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, so part of it, that is an important step, is, is marginalizing conflict entrepreneurs and also platforms that raise up and incentivize conflict entrepreneurship, right? Uh, but, you know, interestingly, people in the book, the more I talked to them about this, the more they pushed back on this idea that, that we just have to marginalize them. So Curtis, in particular, the former gang leader in Chicago, he talks about, he works now with young men in Chicago uh, who are at very high risk of getting shot or shooting someone else. And he talks about how, since he used to be himself a conflict entrepreneur, he can talk very persuasively and powerfully about the motivations of the conflict entrepreneur and how important it is to understand those motivations, right? And it can be very hard to do because they're so they're so toxic and dangerous. But what he's found is usually most conflict entrepreneurs have deep internal conflict. And until they are ready, willing, and able to deal with that, the external conflict is going to continue. So for him, it wasn't until he was able to deal with internal conflict that he had from experiencing so much violence, particularly towards his mother over many years. It was only when he, he dealt with that and had the resources and ability to deal with that, that the external conflict stopped, right? So there, again, here we see the inner and outer fight are very connected. So where does this leave us with, you know, with the conflict entrepreneurs in Congress or on TV? Uh, I definitely think the first step is to distance ourselves from them to the degree possible, change up the incentives. These are very hard things to do, right? But we have to change the norms around what is what is noble and honorable behavior, because right now there's nothing but incentives for conflict entrepreneurs. And and that's, you know, that's a longer conversation. But certainly that is a huge problem that we're all facing. Well, I, I think this has been a, a really great conversation. Um, and I think we've, you know, really surfaced some, I think, very tricky ish issues here. And, you know, I think the, the uh, I mean, the key takeaway for me is that it's just really hard to get out of high conflict. And there's just so many forces that, you know, really continue to, to pull us in, but it's not impossible. And you know, my, my big takeaway here is just this idea that, you know, politics isn't something that you win. And I think once we get the idea uh, in our minds that politics isn't something that, that you win, but rather, you know, we're, we're stuck with each other, uh, you know, I think that may, maybe that's really a, a central insight here. Um, and anybody else have any, any final comments they want to make before we, we close? Amanda, any final thoughts? Um, no, I think this has been this has been a fun conversation. I feel like we've workshopped some things that I need to work on for the paperback edition. <laughs> and that's good. Um, and, you know, I think these are really hard problems, but it's it's I like this idea of not being able to win politics. It almost sounds sacrilegious when you say it, which I kind of like. It sounds very subversive, like shocking. <laughs> he must have, he must have met, he not meant to say that. 
Um, so, so I like, I like that. And, you know, I hope we can, uh, continue the conversation. I really, I really enjoyed it. And I appreciate your, your discussing these things with me right now. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Elena Soros, Shannon Lynch, and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. You've got opinions about everything. Who to vote for, what god to worship, the best way to make brownies. But do you know where your opinions come from? Are they really yours, or did you inherit them? The On Opinion podcast seeks to answer some of these questions by speaking to philosophers, psychologists, and social scientists about where our beliefs come from, why we argue, and what that means for society and our politics. Host Chori Monte has spoken to John Haidt on morality, Timothy Garden-Ash on 21st century liberalism, Regina Rini on microaggressions, and many more. On Opinion is brought to you by Parlia.com, the encyclopedia of opinion, and you can find it wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.